Take your copy of God's Word and turn with me to Ephesians chapter 4. Ephesians chapter 4, you'll find Paul's letter to the church at Ephesus. As you get near the end of the Scripture, like so much of the New Testament, it's a letter to a specific church with God's message to them. I think he has a message for us. I want to ask you a question. Have you ever been hurt? Have you ever hurt someone else? It's kind of a silly question, isn't it? We all know what it's like to be forgiven. We all know what it's like to express forgiveness. But sometimes it just gets a hold of us. We feel like the lady that she got bit by a rabid dog and she noticed she began to get sick. So she went to the doctor and by the time she got to the doctor, she was really sick. And by the time the doctor saw her, he said, ma'am, I, I don't know what to say, but I mean, you are very ill. The only thing I can recommend is that you go home and, and that you uh, write your will. And she said, seriously? He said, yeah. She said, a will? He said, yeah. He said, I, I'm not writing a will. I'm writing a list. And he said, a list? What kind of list? She said, I'm going to write a list of the people that I'm going to bite. Sometimes when we are bitten, that's all we know to do is to bite back. And for, for some of you, that's become a controlling function in your life. We all know those moments of hurt. I was trying to think back at just the earliest hurts in my life. I know there were more, but I do remember this time I was in third grade. My dad would travel and go to conferences and revivals and mission trips and it wasn't unusual when he would come back he would bring me a little gift and I'll never forget third grade he had he had been to Tennessee and he brought me back a knife now I don't even know if knife is a fitting term it was very tiny not very sharp but it was a pocket knife and it had on the side of the knife Tennessee I mean, he might have got it at a gas station on the way, but I don't know. But it was special to me. I was proud of that. And so as a third grader, I put it in my pocket. I, I took it to school. And when I was on the playground, I showed it to my friends. But I'll never forget what it was like in Miss Richardson's class when I heard over the loudspeaker, uh, Miss Richardson, uh, yes, uh, could you send Paul Purvis to the principal's office? I'm like, crud. So I go to the principal's office and... And he says, young man, yes, sir. Did you bring a knife to school? Yes, sir. I had to give it to him. Here was the worst part, though. There's this friend of mine. He was born two weeks before me. We went to church together. We played together. Eventually, we would go and room together in seminary. He would be best man in my wedding. His name is Rodney. And I found out that it was Rodney who turned me in for bringing a knife to school. What in the world? Man, that hurt. Not a surprise, though, because usually it's, it's the people you know and love the best that can hurt you the most, isn't it? I remember in, in junior high, that's like middle school today, I came off the football field and walked into the locker room and everybody got quiet. It didn't take long for me to realize they were talking about me. That hurt. I remember in high school, I, I ran cross country and I remember one day the coach an adult, the coach of the team, he, he, he thought he was going to be funny and he, he made some cutting remark about my dad because he was a preacher, not a real man like him. My dad, by the way, was a Marine. But I know how that hurt. As an adult, because most of my life, just by God's providence, has been in the church, Man, a lot of my herd has been in the church. It's, it's when you in, invest in people and, and you're part of their lives. Maybe you're there when their children are born or their children are married or their parents die. And, and then they get mad over something silly. And they kind of cut you off or leave the church or stab you in the back. And it hurts. Uh, I know that pales in comparison to the hurts that some of you have been through. 
And frankly, I need to say I think it pales in comparison to the hurt I caused. I think I've caused more hurt in my life than I've received. But we all understand that term, hurt. So I would say, who hurt you? A playground bully? A boss? A classmate or a coworker? A friend? A family member? A spouse? Someone in authority? What happened? Was it a sharp word? Was it some abuse that you endured? Someone that took advantage or even touched you in a way that they should not have? Something that was taken from you? This is painful, isn't it? And I've lived enough to know that sometimes you have to walk through a painful process to get to the point of hope and encouragement. That's where we're going to land today, but I want you just to kind of simmer in the midst of this pain for a moment. Because we have to decide what we're going to do with those feelings of hurt. We've all experienced them. So what are you going to do about that? Too often I feel like we're like the sad dog that gets chained up and, and he's got a collar around his neck and he just looks sad because he's not able to experience life the way he wants to experience life. And it's not just the collar around his neck, it's all the links in that chain that are keeping him where he is. And that's what's happening to some of you. You've got this collar of unforgiveness and tied to that collar are all these links in your life of things that are keeping you from God's best. Things like bitterness and rage and anger and resentment. Things like a critical or a fighting spirit or a harsh tongue. How do you break free when you're chained up by unforgiveness? We've been talking about breaking free. Scripture has taught us that we're all in a spiritual war. The spiritual world we live in necessarily is in the midst of spiritual war. And the battlefield for that war, Scripture teaches us, is taking place in the human mind. So much of what we deal with takes place right here. That's why the first thing we talked about is how to break down the strongholds that have taken hold of us, how to take thoughts captive so that we might experience God's best. But last week we learned that sometimes we still struggle with sinful and habitual behaviors and addictions, those things that we might describe as hurts or habits and hang-ups. And, and so we understood that it's not just the lies we've believed that can hurt us, but it's the lies we tell Lies we tell ourselves, lies we tell others, lies we believe about God. But fortunately, we were reminded that God is a God of truth. And it's that truth that sets us free and gives us hope. So what do we do about that when it relates to unforgiveness? Because that's where some of you are. Ever since I began talking about the hurt and the pain, you're thinking, you don't know, Pastor. I, I've tried everything. I've, I, I, I've, I've tried my devotionals. I, I, I've prayed about it. I, maybe I've gone to therapy. I've read books. I, I'm struggling. And you feel like, maybe you feel like this. Sometimes I'll vacuum the house. And I'll, I'll see like a piece of lint on the floor. And I run the vacuum over it, and it, for some crazy reason, it, it doesn't go in the vacuum. Has that ever happened to you? And, and so then I get real strategic, and I like twist and turn, and I'll get my whole body into it, bending down, just trying to get it from all different angles. And sometimes it still won't come up. And so what do you do? You've done it. You know what you do. You reach down, and you pick it up, and you look at it, this piece of lint. Now, if you had sense, what would you do? You would walk over to the trash can and throw it in the trash. But that's not what we do, is it? We put it back down and then we run over it again because we've got it right in the right spot. And that's how some of you are dealing with this issue of unforgiveness. You're trying everything but the right thing. And it's not making the difference it should make. So what do you do when you get controlled by feelings that you can't get rid of? Well, you have to remember, we are not people who make decisions based on our feelings. 
As Christ followers, we must allow our beliefs to shape our feelings rather than letting our feelings shape our beliefs. So we have to decide what is true and then am I going to live in the truth? Not how do I feel and what am I going to do about how I feel? That brings us to Ephesians. What a tremendous letter of Scripture. Like most of Paul's writings, it's divided into two parts. He begins by talking about doctrine, what we know and believe about God and who he is, what Jesus has done for us. It's in these chapters of Ephesians that we have verses like this, for by grace are you saved through faith. It is not of yourselves, it is the gift of God, lest any of you should boast. It's in the first part of this Ephesians that we have verses like this, how, how deep and wide is the love of God. It's in Ephesians, in these first chapters that we have a verse like this. He's able to do exceedingly, abundantly, above and beyond anything you've ever asked, dreamt, or imagined. All these things we believe. And then in the second part of the chapter, he begins to talk to us about how our beliefs should affect our behavior. So the doctrine necessarily leads to duty. And, and that really is something that we deal with every week when we gather in this place and in these spaces. We're saying that these things that we found in Scripture to be true are applied to our life, and these truths applied to our lives should make practical difference. If they don't, we live this, leave this place, and our neighbors, our family, our, our friends, our coworkers, they look at us and they call us hypocrites because they say what you believe is not affecting your behavior. Your doctrine is not affecting your duty. And so in Ephesians 4, Paul has begun to tell us some of those behaviors that should be a part of our life. I wish we had time just to read through the whole passage. We don't. So maybe you would read that devotionally later today. Just see some of those things the scripture teaches us, like this simple principle, don't let the sun go down on your anger. Now, why would scripture teach us something so simple? It's just a reminder that when we stay angry, when we don't deal with that, that seed of bitterness begins to take root in our life and causes all kind of havoc. But let me just jump right in where we're focusing today. Verse 30 of Ephesians 4. This is the word of God. And do not grieve the Holy Spirit of God, with whom you were sealed for the day of redemption. Get rid of all bitterness, rage, and anger, brawling, and slander, along with every form of malice. Be kind and compassionate to one another, forgiving each other, just as in Christ, God forgave you. So, Father, once more, we have come into your presence and with our hands outstretched, we ask you to fill us with what we need that we don't have. With our arms lifted high, we say, may your name be praised. With our arms outstretched, we say, we surrender. Lord, all of these things represent not just those of us gathered there, my heart today. Let my words be your words and my thoughts be your thoughts so that this be a divine supernatural time and as a result, you do divine supernatural work beginning with the work of salvation. May someone here today understand their need for you, Jesus. And may the hope of the gospel grant life. And I ask this in Jesus' name. Amen. I want you to understand that scripture teaches that the way we live either feeds the enemy or it feeds our spiritual nourishment. You either starve the enemy God, you either starve God and, and feed the enemy with what you do or you starve the enemy and you feed those spiritual things in your life. Paul talks about feeding the enemy in verse 27. We didn't read it, so let me just give it to you. Do not give the devil a foothold. What is he saying? There are things we do in our life that's like opening a door to the enemy. Now, let me just remind you, when I talk about the enemy, I'm talking about your enemy. You only have one enemy. That person you think is your enemy is probably not your enemy. You have one enemy. Now, he's a doozy. He's after you and your mama. He's alive and well. The Bible says he's roaming the earth, seeking to kill, to steal, and to destroy. 
We know him as Satan, the father of lies, the slanderer, the evil one, the deceiver, the devil, Lucifer. You feed the enemy when you open the door of your life in different ways to his plans versus God's plans. Verses 25 through 29 give us some of the ways we feed the enemy. He talks about believing and telling lies. He talks about living in anger. He talks about being a thief, taking things that are not ours. Talking in unwholesome ways. Tearing others down. Being bitter. That just reminds me of that phrase I remind you of often. Bitterness is that poison that we drink while we wait for someone else to die. And we have to ask, what kind of impact are these lifestyles having on our life? Well, they're feeding the enemy. And they're starving God. How do they starve God? Look again at verse 30. And do not grieve the Holy Spirit of God with whom you were sealed for the day of redemption. The second phrase of this verse is is one of my favorite doctrines in Scripture. It speaks of eternal security or what we call the perseverance of the saints. The fact that when you begin a relationship with God, if you've truly begun a relationship with Christ, you can't lose that salvation. Why not? It's not based on what you've done. It's based on what God's done. He's sealed you with his spirit. What that means is the Holy Spirit of God comes into your life and he takes residence and he's there to stay until the day of redemption. What's the day of the redemption? It's the day that you see Jesus face to face. Wednesday morning at 5.50 a.m., my 83-year-old father-in-law, who's lived a good and faithful life, he breathed his last breath here, and he opened his eyes, and he saw Jesus. 32 years ago, I asked him, what's your definition of worship? He was a worship pastor at the same church for 42 years. He told me this way back then. He said, it's simply practicing the presence of God. In these latter days, I would tell him, Pa, you're getting close to practicing the presence of God in the presence of Jesus. And at that moment, when you open your eyes as a child of God and you see Jesus face to face, you no longer have to be indwelt with the presence of God because now forever you are in the presence of God. But until that moment, the Holy Spirit of God is sealed within you. And so what does that mean? When we do things that are not of his will and not according to his way and not consistent with his word, it grieves him. We can make the heart of God sad in our lives by the way that we live. That's what he's saying. It's starving the spirit of God. So how do we correct this? That's that key verse, verse 32. Be kind and compassionate to one another, forgiving each other, just as in Christ... God forgave you. I want you to understand kind of this main point today. According to Scripture, forgiveness is the key that unlocks our potential to experience the abundant life made possible through the gospel of Jesus Christ. I've not met someone who professes to be a Christ follower that just says, I just want to get by. Everybody that's taken that step of faith that I interact with says, I I want everything I can get. I want the abundant life. Jesus said, I've come that you might have life and that you might have it abundantly. So how do I get that abundant life? I believe this simple principle of forgiveness is the key to that. Why? Because we need to experience God's forgiveness and then we need to express forgiveness to others. Those two things are what provide joy and the opportunity for joy in my life. So let's dive deeper And I just want to kind of teach this principle of forgiveness to you. So let's first start at forgiveness, the meaning. What is the meaning of forgiveness? I'll give you a simple definition. Forgiveness is the act of setting someone free from an obligation to you that's a result of a wrong done against you. Forgiveness is the act of setting someone free from an obligation to you that's a result of a wrong done against you. Now, let's take a quick survey. Raise your hand if you've ever had a wrong done against you. All right, that was easy. That's the easiest question I've ever asked. Of course you have. So 
Forgiveness is when we set someone free from the obligation that they now owe because of that wrong that they did against us. Three things in that. First of all, a wrong's been done. Second of all, a debt is owed. Thirdly, freedom is granted. Now, what does that think of, make you think of when I just walk through that? I think it's what Paul's trying to teach us in this simple verse. Forgiveness is best understood. We can best understand the meaning of forgiveness when we look at what God has done through, uh, for us through Jesus Christ. So think of those three things. A wrong has been done. We did wrong. Say this. Say, I did wrong. Sure you did, because you're a sinner just like me. The Bible says in Romans 3, all of us have sinned and we've fallen short of God's design, his mark. And so all of us have done wrong. Secondly, we owe a debt. What is the debt? Well, the Bible says the wages or the payment of sin is what? Death. So the debt that we owe is to die. You understand that, right? That's what Scripture teaches. If our sin is left undealt with, we will spend forever in death. Those who have forgiveness spend forever with life. Those who don't have forgiveness spend forever in death. We know the places where the Bible says those take place. Those who spend forever in life spend it in heaven. Those who spend forever in death spend it in hell. That's just what Scripture teaches. We owe a debt. But Jesus paid our sin debt, and he sets us free from our obligations. That's the simplicity of the gospel. God did in Jesus on the cross of Calvary what we could never do for ourselves. So you could say forgiveness simply means doing for others what God has done for us. Now, just think about that as I read the definition again. Forgiveness is the act of setting someone free from an obligation to you that's a result of a wrong done against you. There's some other ways I think you can think about this. I love Charles Stanley, the great preacher and teacher. He says, forgiveness is giving up my right to hurting you for hurting me. Or Chris Braun said, forgiveness is a commitment by the offended to pardon graciously the repentant from moral liability and to be reconciled to that person, although not all consequences are necessarily eliminated. Tim Keller has a, a great new book on forgiveness. And listen to what he says. Forgiveness is granted, that's the event, before it's felt. That's the process. It's a promise before God not to take revenge on a wrongdoer for making his or her sin against you. Making that promise entails three practical commitments. You promise not to constantly bring the sin up to the wrongdoer in order to browbeat or punish her or him. You promise not to constantly bring the sin up to other people in order to hurt the wrongdoer's reputation and relationship with others. And you promise not to constantly bring the sin up to yourself to keep the anger hot not to replay the video of it in order to cherish the feelings of no, nobility and the virtue that comes from having been treated unjustly. That's forgiveness. It, it really is getting to this place by God's grace that you're moving forward. You're no longer bound by this collar of unforgiveness. You're no longer chained up by these things like bitterness and anger and resentment. But you're moving forward by God's grace, having been forgiven and forgiving others. But it's hard, isn't it? Because we've walked through some hard stuff. And, and some of you have walked through some really hard stuff. The things that you've endured, the things that you have walked through. How could you possibly imagine forgiving someone? Because when we think of forgiveness, we think transactional. We, we think we have to say to someone, you need to be forgiven. And they say to us, I, I am sorry. Or, or we say to someone, I am sorry. And they say to us, I forgive you. Sometimes forgiveness is transactional, but sometimes forgiveness is unilateral. You know what that means? It's just one way. So it may be that the person that hurt you is not even living anymore. Maybe a parent or a spouse who abandoned you. 
It may be that it's not even wise or safe for you to be around that person. They're in jail or they should be. It it may be that it's just not something that's going to happen face to face. So how do we do this? How do we walk through this hard time? What do we do? First of all, you need to understand what forgiveness is not. So we talked about forgiveness, the meaning. Let me talk about forgiveness, the myths. Because some of you are struggling with forgiveness because you're thinking it's something that it's not. So this will be real quick. Let me just help you by telling you that forgiveness does not mean you forget the wrong done to you. Some of you struggle to forgive because you say, I forgive, but I can never forget. Well, of course you can't. You, You can't just block something out automatically. Sometimes because of emotional pain or psychological impact, our memories are blocked, but that's rarely done because we sit here and go, I'm not going to think about it anymore. It's just not the way it works. We're not God. God can do that. Did you know God says that when it comes to our sin that is confessed and forgiven, he separates it as far as the east is from the west. He remembers it no more, the Bible says, but we're not God. So forgiveness doesn't mean you forget the wrong done to you. Forgiveness does not mean you approve of the wrong done to you. I've heard people say, if I forgive, it's going to be like I'm saying that I was okay with it. No, it doesn't. It doesn't mean you excuse the wrong done to you. It certainly doesn't mean you pardon the wrong done to you. You know what a pardon is? Every year at the end of the year, sometimes at the stroke of midnight, the president will pardon criminals. People who have been convicted of crimes. It makes big news, sometimes bigger than others. But the the president, what are they saying? They're saying, you're not only freed from these charges, there are no longer any consequences to what you've done. It's not forgiveness. You're not going to take away the consequences. Again, you don't have that power. Sometimes that's in the hands of the law. Sometimes things have been set into motion. Think about David. David's one of the greatest examples in Scripture of public sin, of public confession, and of forgiveness of God. We know this because in the New Testament, David is still referred to as a man after God's own heart. And yet, were there consequences of his sin, even though he got right with God? Oh, yeah. His family was a mess for generations Moses is described in Scripture as maybe the greatest leader that's ever been. Nobody before him or after him like Moses. And yet, did you know why Moses didn't get to go to the promised land? It's because of his sin. Specifically, because of his anger. He disobeyed God in anger. So there were consequences even though he got God's forgiveness. Forgiveness does not necessarily mean you reconcile with the wrongdoer. As I've mentioned, that's sometimes not possible and sometimes it's not beneficial. It does not mean you repress the pain that the wrongdoing caused and pretend like nothing happened. Don't believe the myths. Understand the meaning. Forgiveness the meaning, forgiveness the myth. But I want you to hear forgiveness the mandate. So this is what Scripture says. Be very clear. Look again at verse 32. Be kind and compassionate to one another, forgiving each other, just as in Christ God forgave you. (laughs) If you hang out here very often, you've heard me say, a Christ follower never has the liberty to be unkind. Today I want to give you a new statement according to Ephesians 4.32. A Christ follower never has the liberty to be unforgiving. If you are a follower of Jesus Christ, you don't have that option. This was a command, and it's consistent throughout Scripture. Again, in Colossians 3 and verse 13, it says, Bear with each other and forgive one another. If any of you has a grievance against someone, forgive as the Lord forgave you. But lest you think this is just the Apostle Paul, This did not originate with him. How about the words of Jesus? He taught us how to pray, our Father, 
who art in heaven, hallowed be thy name. Thy kingdom come, thy will be done on earth as it is in heaven. Give us this day our daily bread and forgive us our trespasses as we forgive those who trespass against us. Forgive us our debts as we forgive our debtors. One of the greatest resources I've ever found on forgiveness is a book called Total Forgiveness, and it's by a man named R.T. Kendall. Total Forgiveness, R.T. Kendall. This is what R.T. Kendall says about the verse we just read. He says, isn't it interesting that just after Jesus has taught us to pray for daily bread, he teaches us to pray for daily forgiveness. This is an integral, daily part of our life. But... That's not where Jesus stopped. In fact, if you're reading in Matthew, right after the Lord's Prayer, this is what he says in verse 14. For if you forgive other people when they sin against you, your heavenly Father will also forgive you. But if you do not forgive others their sins, your Father will not forgive your sins. Guys, some of you may not have known these verses were in the Bible, but this speaks of the mandate. This teaches us that forgiveness is not optional, that, that Christ's followers never have the liberty to be unkind, that forgiveness for us is conditional. Our ability to experience God's forgiveness is directly related to our ability to express, experience, express forgiveness to others. So how are you doing with that? To refuse to forgive is to burn a bridge over which you must pass. That's what Tony Evans said. Listen to how Mark describes this. Mark 11 and verse 25. When you stand praying, if you hold anything against anyone, forgive them. So that your Father in heaven may forgive you your sins. Church, it's important as a pastor and a teacher that you understand the significance of this biblical reality. We are mandated to forgive. Jesus illustrates this in Matthew 18. He tells a story. He says there's a master who has many servants. Some of the servants owe him debts. He decides to collect on those debts. So he calls in a man who owes him what would equal more than 20 years worth of annual wages. Some scholars have calculated that this would literally be billions of dollars in today's money. He comes in and tells the guy, it's time to pay your debt. Of course, the guy has no way to pay the debt. So what does he do? He says, I can't do this. Please forgive me. And he begs, he begs, he begs for forgiveness. What does the master do? He forgives him and he cancels the debt. Jesus continues to tell the story and he says that that guy leaves the presence of the master and he goes out into the community and he comes across people that owe him debts. And this one guy, the Bible says it really wasn't that much money. Compared to what he owed, this is more like, I don't know, money it would take to buy a dozen eggs at Publix. Well, that is a good bit of money. <laughs> but he told the, the guy, it's time to pay up. And the guy began to beg him, please don't let me pay. But the Bible says he grabbed him by the neck and said, no, you're going to pay. And then the word gets back to the master. The master. Listen to what Jesus says in Matthew 18, 32. Then the master called the servant in. He said, you wicked servant. I canceled all that debt of yours because you begged me to. Shouldn't you have had mercy on your fellow servant just as I had on you? In his anger, his master handed him over to the jailers to be tortured until he should pay back all that he owed. And then Jesus says... This is how my heavenly Father will treat each of you unless you forgive your brother or sister from your heart. I, I want you to understand that this is something we have to 
we have to see as a mandate from God. But at this point, it still seems like an impossible mandate. It's like the piece of lint that we can't get up. We're still just adjusting ourselves. So how do we respond? How do we do this? I think that's found in the motivation that Paul describes at the end of that verse. So we've looked at forgiveness, the meaning, and forgiveness, the myths, and forgiveness, the mandates. I want you to see forgiveness, the motivation. So one more time. In fact, this time, let's read Ephesians 4.32 together. Be kind and compassionate to one another, forgiving each other, just as in Christ God forgave you. What do you think our motivation is to forgive? We've been forgiven by Christ. How does God in Christ forgive us? Well, let me go back to something we've talked about. It begins unilaterally. Do you understand that? The Bible teaches us that when Jesus died on the cross, he died for all sin, past, present, and future. You know that had to be the case. If that were not the case, then he would have to keep going back to the cross. And that would not have been a new covenant. That would have been like the old covenant where there would have to be sacrifice made every year because sins would be renewed repeatedly. But the Bible says in the book of Hebrews that when Jesus died, he died once for all. And because Jesus died once for all, that means he died regardless of our response to his death. So his forgiveness that he's making available was not based on anything that we do. His forgiveness was unilateral. Just like sometimes you will have to forgive. This is how the Bible describes that forgiveness in Romans chapter 5. You see, at just the right time when we were still powerless, Christ died for the ungodly. Very rarely will anyone die for a righteous person, though for a good person someone might possibly dare to die. But God demonstrates his own love for us in that while we were still sinners, Christ died for us. It should motivate us that in a unilateral action, Jesus died for us. We didn't earn it. We didn't deserve it. It was all a result of his grace. Sometimes I'll talk to someone about forgiveness and they'll say, Pastor Paul, it's just not fair. And I might have to say, you're right. It's not. And I would say to you is that unilateral forgiveness that God makes available to us through Jesus, it's not fair. You know what would be fair? What would be righteous and just is that God would give us the punishment that we deserve. That would be fair. God's not always fair, but he's always just. He always does what's right. Then he allows us to apply this forgiveness in that transactional way. So this forgiveness that was granted once and for all, how do we receive that? We look to Jesus. We recognize that his death paid it all. We entrust him with our lives. We agree with him about our sinfulness. And we receive that forgiveness. Now what takes place when that happens? Number one, it brings glory to the name of God. God is glorified when you confess your sins and when you receive forgiveness. Psalms 25, 11 says, For the sake of your name, Lord, forgive my iniquity, though it is great. Secondly, when we receive God's forgiveness, it's like a shot in the arm spiritually. It invigorates us. It's like a spiritual monster energy drink. Listen to what it says in Psalm 32. Blessed is the one whose transgressions are forgiven, whose sins are covered. Blessed is the one who does not count, whose sin the Lord does not count against them and whose spirit is no deceit. When I kept silent, my bones wasted away, though my groaning all day long. For day and night your hand was heavy on me. My strength was zapped in the heat of the summer. Then I acknowledged my sin to you and did not cover my iniquity and said, 
I will confess my transgressions to the Lord and you forgave the guilt of my sins. Something happens to us. I believe even physically, but certainly spiritually when we receive God's forgiveness. But the biggest thing that happens is that we're changed. We're released from the debt that we owe. I told you David's sin... Man, everybody in the world knows about David's sin. Aren't you glad you're not him? I mean, maybe some people know some of the bad things. You know, Not like David, but we also have his confession. And I love what he says in Psalm 51.10, Create in me a pure, a clean heart, O God, and renew a steadfast or a right spirit within me. David knew that confession and forgiveness brought change. We talked about that last week. First John says if we confess our sin, he is faithful and just and will forgive our sins and purify us of all unrighteousness. I guess I would just ask you today, before we do anything else, before you think about forgiving anyone else, have you experienced The forgiveness of God. That's the message we come to share every time we gather. We are needy. We're made needy because of our sinfulness. That sin creates a debt. A debt we could never pay. But out of God's rich love, he sent his son, Jesus, who died in our place who paid our debt, and when we look to Jesus, turning from our sin, he gives us forgiveness by showing us grace. That's the gospel. If you've never received that forgiveness, I want to invite you to do that right now. Would you bow your heads with me? So I'm just talking to those who've never begun that relationship with Christ. If you've never applied the forgiveness of Jesus to your life, why not today? Why not right now? You say, how do I do that, Paul? Well, you've got to agree with Jesus that you need his forgiveness because you're a sinner. You've got to believe that what Jesus did on the cross was enough, that he died for your sins. He paid the debt. And then you've got to turn from trusting in yourself to figure this thing out. And you've got to turn to him. The Bible calls that repentance. You're repenting of your sin and you're turning to Jesus. Now, I want to be very clear. There's no magic prayer you can pray that makes that happen but there is a simple way to talk to God and tell him that's your desire just walk through that process I just walked through but sometimes we find it hard to say those words so if words like these or these words express your desire maybe you would pray it to God right now maybe you just pray Jesus I know I'm a sinner I need to be saved. I believe you died for my sin. I believe you're alive today. So I'm turning to you. I'm repenting. I know that you want to be the Lord of all that I am. So here I am, Lord. Save me. I tell him thank you.
So God, in this moment, I would just say, you know who you drew to you. And I would just ask that you give the clarity to just cement that decision in hearts and minds in a way that could only come from you. And I thank you for this in Jesus' name. Amen. Now here's the deal. Remember, uh, I'm a junkie. I grew up in this. So I'm looking at you and, and some of you have missed it because you heard me talking about a gospel prayer and you thought it's over. We had people even leave. Some of you begin to talk to each other. You closed your Bibles. But the reality is we gather as the body of Christ. So most people here, at least by your profession, you've said you don't need to do what we just did. But you're still struggling with this act of forgiveness. Some of you are like the sad puppy. Except you don't look cute. You look angry. You've become grumpy. You're filled with negativity. And it comes back to this unforgiveness that has bound you. And I want you to understand that according to Scripture, forgiveness is the key that unlocks our potential to experience abundant life made possible through the gospel of Jesus Christ. That's the whole message. You've seen it on the screen again and again and again. That's what forgiveness is. Do you need to be unleashed from unforgiveness? One of the best stories I've ever seen of forgiveness is the story of Corrie ten Boom. She was placed in a Nazi concentration camp because she and her family, they had housed Jews in their home, hiding them from the Germans. While she was at Ravensbrück, she was humiliated, tortured, raped, and abused, and starved. But by the grace of God, she survived. Her sister, Betsy, did not. In 1947, she was speaking to a crowd about forgiveness and the love of God. And in the crowd that day was one of the far, former guards that were one of her abusers. After the speech, he came up to her and he wanted forgiveness. He told her he had become a Christian after the war. And, and then he extended his hand and said he sought forgiveness for all the cruel things that he had done. Corey says, I just stood there. I, whose sins had every day had to be forgiven. But I could not extend my hand. Betsy, her sister, had died in that place. Could he erase her slow, terrible death simply by asking? She stood there looking at his hand. Her dilemma was she knew about Christian forgiveness, that it's not an emotion, but an act of the will based on belief. So she silently prayed, Jesus, help me. I can lift my hand. I can do that much. So woodenly, mechanically, I thrust my hand into the one stretched out to me. And as I did, an incredible thing took place. The current started in my shoulder. It raced down my arm. It sprang into our joined hands. And then this healing warmth seemed to flood my whole being. Tears in my eyes. I forgive you, brother, I cried with all my heart. For a long moment, we just grasped each other's hands. The former guard and the former prisoner. I had never, ever known God's love so intensely as I did then. Later in life, she recounts, I wish I could say that merciful and charitable thoughts have naturally just flowed from me from then on, but they didn't. If there's one thing I've learned in 80 years of age, it's that I can't store up good feelings and behavior, but only draw them fresh from God each day. So to most of us gathered here, those who profess to follow Christ what are you going to do today are you going to draw from him are you going to rest in him are you going to trust him 
you going to forgive? Now, we close our Bibles. Would you stand together with me? We're going to sing a song that really speaks to our opportunity to respond. I don't know what your need is. There are pastors who will be standing here as always if you want to pray with someone. It's an opportunity to make this kind of a private prayer altar if you just want to come and pray by yourself. Whatever your need, I want you to breathe in this song and come into the presence of God and do the business that He's calling you to do. So, Father, we thank you that you make forgiveness possible. And, Lord, I know that this is, uh, this is kind of one of those messages that just stirs things up in us because we've all hurt others and we've all been hurt. So, Lord, I, I pray that today, like we often say, we wouldn't leave what you've done in this room like we leave a crumpled up bulletin on a chair. But Lord, we'd take it with us, we'd process it, that you'd work it into us through your word, the truth of scripture. Lord, that as we go, we'd preach the gospel to ourselves and that we'd recognize how great is your forgiveness and your grace. You're an awesome savior, Jesus. We love you. We pray this in your name. Amen. Give God praise as you're seated today.